I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by Cove for Migraines, Beta Brand Online Clothing Community and Mott & Bow Clothing Company. Thank you to listener of the show, Misty, for bringing this case to my attention. And a big thank you to Jared Barton, who recently began supporting the show through Patreon. I appreciate you, Jared. If you love Murderish and want to go behind the mic to enjoy bonus content, get Murderish merch, and a shout-out on the podcast and more, check out the Murderish Patreon page at patreon.com murderish. At the end of this episode, I'm featuring a promo for a true crime podcast called Murderific, so stick around and give it a listen, and as always, have your subscribe trigger finger ready. This case brings us to New Mexico, where a serial killer preyed on vulnerable women in the early 2000s. Rumors percolated around the town with gruesome details of beheadings and the dumping of bodies in an undeveloped area in Albuquerque. This story begins with the discovery of a femur bone, and that would only be a prelude to what would be Albuquerque's crime of the century. Join me as I walk you through the case of the West Mesa Bone Collector.
morning on 7 News, the body of a Lawton teen missing for more than six years has been found. 15-year-old Solania Edwards was reported as an endangered runaway in 2003. Police in Albuquerque, New Mexico, say they found her body and that she was the victim of a serial killer. Her remains, along with 10 others, were discovered in shallow graves in West Mesa. A medical investigator was able to identify Edwards through her dental records. She would have turned 21 this month. Albuquerque, founded as a Spanish outpost in 1706, is located in the north-central part of New Mexico. Mexico took control of the territory until it was annexed to the United States after the Mexican-American War in 1846. The famous Rio Grande River flows through the city of Albuquerque. Most of the 2012 blockbuster The Avengers was filmed at the Albuquerque Studios as well as the wildly popular TV show Breaking Bad and highly talked about documentary In Plain Sight. Amazon founder and Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos, as well as singer Demi Lovato, were born in Albuquerque. The city's violent crime rate on a scale of 1 to 100 scores at 51, more than double the United States average. The West Mesa in Albuquerque is an elevated part of the city located west of the Rio Grande River. The West Mesa is part of the Petroglyph National Monument. Interstate 40 and Route 66 both run through the West Mesa, which makes it prime property for developers to build housing subdivisions. From the West Mesa, a person can look out over the city of Albuquerque with the mountains as a backdrop. In 2001, something very sinister began to occur amid that picturesque backdrop. Women who worked in the sex trade in Albuquerque began vanishing from the area in 2001. By 2005, certain members of the Albuquerque Police Department had begun to take notice. At the time, the department had only one officer assigned to missing persons cases. Detective Ida Lopez had previously worked in Vice and as a uniformed officer patrolling an area in Albuquerque known as the War Zone. The War Zone, one of the most dangerous areas in Albuquerque, runs along Central Avenue between Wyoming Boulevard and San Mateo Boulevard. The War Zone is well known for its violent crime, drug dealing, gang activity, and prostitution. The city of Albuquerque officially named the neighborhood the International District in an attempt at a more inviting name for tourists. But to locals, it's still the war zone. Detective Ida Lopez got to know many of the sex workers in the area during her time as a patrol officer. After noticing that some of the women she knew began to disappear, Lopez began keeping a list of the missing women's names. She then combined her list with the names of missing women given to her by other officers. By 2007, Lopez's list had grown to 16 names. Officers began searching for these women, but they didn't have much, if anything, to go on. Although they were missing, there was no evidence pointing to any of the women being murdered or kidnapped. Lopez, however, kept her list in hopes of eventually finding out what happened to these women. Lopez kept in contact with family members of the missing women and spoke with other sex workers who knew some of the women on her list to see if they had any information on their whereabouts. One rumor Lopez kept hearing, but couldn't confirm, 
was that some of the women had been dumped in the West Mesa area. Unfortunately, no one seemed to know anything more specific than that, and with the West Mesa being such a vast area, police needed more specific information in order to begin searching. On February 2, 2009, a woman named Christine Ross was walking in the West Mesa area with her husband and their dog, a Sharpay mix named Ruka. The 92-acre area in which they were walking was being turned into a subdivision near 118th Street and Dennis Chavez Southwest Boulevard, now called Westgate Heights. Because of the recent housing bubble collapse, subdivision development on the West Mesa had stopped abruptly, and some areas, including the one where they were walking, had remained undisturbed for a time. As the couple walked, Ruka saw something sticking out of the ground. As dogs do, she went over to the item to investigate. The dog brought the item back to the couple, and they could see that she had a bone in her mouth, more specifically, a femur. Christine hoped it was not from a human being, saying, It didn't look normal. Our gut instinct told us that it wasn't supposed to be there. Christine took a picture of the femur on her phone and sent it to her sister via text message. Her sister, who was a nurse, verified that it was a human bone. Christine then called the police to report their grisly discovery. Previous to this discovery, residents of a nearby subdivision had been complaining of flooding in their yards due to a natural arroyo, or a dry creek that fills up after heavy rain. The natural arroyo was coming from a nearby undeveloped area. K.B. Holmes, the owner of the undeveloped subdivision, had built a retaining wall between the developed and undeveloped areas. The retaining wall would move the water coming from the arroyo into a detention pond. This redirection of water is what eventually caused the femur to come to the surface of the ground and become exposed. If not for the retaining wall and the area sitting undisturbed after the housing bubble crisis, the subdivision may have been completed, possibly leaving the femur undiscovered forever. The femur was just a small portion of what police would eventually uncover in the area. Ruka had uncovered evidence in a case that would soon be called Albuquerque's crime of the century. Police immediately came to the scene and began digging. Much to their surprise, police uncovered the bones of not one, but two bodies. More investigators were called to the scene, and even more bones were discovered. Archaeologists and cadaver dogs were eventually brought in as well. FBI profilers were consulted, as was a psychic. Albuquerque Police Commander Paul Feist was the chief crime scene investigator for the 118th Street Task Force. This was the team put together by Albuquerque Police Chief Ray Schultz to handle the West Mesa case. The task force included members of the Albuquerque Police Department, the Office of the Medical Investigator, the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department, the New Mexico State Police, the Bernalillo County District Attorney's Office, and the FBI. The team was able to find satellite images which were taken between 2003 and 2005. These images showed tire tracks and undisturbed areas where some of the bodies were found. Images from 2006 showed the beginning of the development for the subdivision. 
Soon after the subdivision had begun the process of being leveled off in 2006, the satellite images showed areas where someone had disturbed the Earth. These images helped to determine when someone began to put these bodies into the ground. Shortly after those images were taken, the entire area had been scaled off for housing development. The task force determined the points on the map where the earth had been disturbed and then focused their digging in those spots. Each time they dug, they found another body. After almost three weeks of digging, they had uncovered the bodies of 11 women and one unborn child. They continued to search day after day for over three months until they had covered every inch of the 92-acre lot. Most of the bones were found within a 10-yard by 30-yard area, although there were bones found throughout the subdivision. It's very possible that machinery leveling the site for construction was also moving some of the bones in the process. Oddly, none of the bodies were clothed and no personal effects were found. The task force only uncovered bones. According to the satellite photos, as well as the decomposition rate, these bones had been there for years. It would take almost a year to identify all 11 women. It turned out that nine of them were on the list that Detective Ida Lopez had been keeping. All but one of the women were Hispanic or Native American, and all but one were local. All of the women had gone missing between 2001 and 2005, four to eight years before the bones were discovered. As with most cases involving serial killers, the unknown killer or killers were referred to by various monikers, like the 118th Street Serial Killer, the West Mesa Serial Killer, and the West Mesa Bone Collector. The high-profile case drew criticism of the police, with many of Albuquerque's citizens claiming that police didn't care about the victims due to their race and their line of work in the sex trade. Some even suggested that a police officer might even be involved in the murders. The medical examiner could not determine the cause of death for the victims. All 12, including the unborn child, were given February 2, 2009 as their date of death. That was the day the first two bodies were discovered. The official cause of death was stated for all as homicidal violence. The autopsy reports also included the following sentence, Some acts of violence, such as strangulation or suffocation, may not leave any detectable injuries to skeletal remains and could not be ruled out by this investigation. I'm such a jeans and t-shirt kind of girl. I once asked a friend if I could slap some sequins on my jeans and call them formal enough to wear to her wedding. Shockingly, that didn't go over in my favor. The point is, I know a great pair of jeans when I find them, so let me tell you about my newest jeans obsession. Mott & Bow is a kick-ass jeans company that makes high-quality jeans in their own factory. And let me tell you, these jeans rock. I just got my second pair, and this time I went with Mott & Bow's high-rise skinny bond jeans with slits over each knee. I rocked these jeans recently on a date night out with my husband. I paired them with my favorite band t-shirt and some stilettos, and I felt like a million bucks. Ladies, you know how a high-end pair of yoga pants suck you in in all the right places? Yeah, that's what Mott & Bow jeans do, and they're comfortable at the same time. These jeans keep their shape for days without washing. 
Mottenbow offers different styles and colors of jeans for women and men at such a fair price. If you're unsure of which size to order, take advantage of Mottenbow's home try-on program. Order two pairs of jeans, only pay for one, then return the pair that doesn't fit using the prepaid return label. Trust me, I am a total jeans snob, and these have become my new favorite. If you're ready to rock jeans that hug you in all the right places, go to mottenbow.com and use promo code MURDERISH for 15% off for first-time buyers. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com and use code MURDERISH for 15% off. Victoria Ann Chavez was the first victim to be discovered. A mother of daughters, Victoria, was born on May 20, 1979. According to police, she had numerous drug and prostitution arrests. Victoria's mother, Mary Gutierrez, said that her daughter got caught up in the world with the wrong crowd. Things happen, but she never brought it into my house. In the eight months before she disappeared, Victoria seemed to have turned her life around. She had moved back in with her mother, secured a job, and was considering a career as a nurse. Her mother said she was getting clean. She was getting her life together. Victoria was last seen by her family on June 5th of 2003. The family was planning to go out together, but Victoria got a call from her boyfriend and told her mother she had to go and that she'd meet up with them later. Victoria left to meet her boyfriend and was never seen alive again. When she didn't come home, Mary thought her daughter had gone back to the life she had been living before. She said, I thought, in due time, she's done this before, she'll call me. Mary waited for a call, a call that never came. After not hearing from Victoria for over a year, Mary called her daughter in as a missing person in March of 2005. Four years later, only Victoria's skeleton would be discovered. After Victoria was identified by dental records, police notified her mother. Mary Gutierrez said of that time, I was in denial. I said, you must be wrong. As far as closure, Mary said, there'll never be closure on something like this. I want justice. I want to find out who did this to her and how she died. After Victoria's death, her daughters went to live with her sister. Michelle Gina Valdez was the second victim to be discovered. Born on August 1st of 1982, Michelle had two younger sisters, a daughter named Angelica and a son named Jeremiah. Michelle was soon to be the mother of a third child. Michelle was four months pregnant at the time she was murdered. Her body, found along with the body of Victoria Chavez, was identified through medical records. Michelle was last seen by her family in September of 2004. In February of 2005, after not calling her mother on her birthday, something she always did, Michelle was reported as a missing person by her father, Dan Valdez. Dan worked at the Youth Corrections Facility in Albuquerque, and knew some of the other victims. Dan remembered that once Michelle got involved with drugs, she began disappearing. First, it was for a few days. Then she'd be gone for a week. Then it was for a month or longer. She would turn up occasionally to ask for money. Even though Dan knew she would spend it on drugs, he'd give it to her, hoping that Michelle would come back again. Dan remembered the last time he saw his daughter. He asked her not to stay away for too long. Dan said, she walked up and put her arms around me and hugged me. I hugged her back and she said, 
No, Dad, hug me hard and tight. Dan went on to say, it seemed as if she knew something was going to happen. Michelle was quite a gal. She would give you the shirt off her back if you needed it. She was good-hearted, kind, and didn't deserve what she got. Michelle was remembered as being a very warm person who entered the drug world around the time she was 12, soon after her parents got divorced, and her mother moved from Albuquerque to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Dan and Karen shared custody of their three daughters. Michelle wanted to live with her mother, but it didn't last very long. Karen said she just thought she was going to run with the 15, 16, and 17-year-old girls and boys, and I had rules and regulations. And she pretty much told me she was going to do what she wanted, and then she punched me in the face. Karen called social workers, who offered to put Michelle in treatment. Back in Albuquerque, Dan objected to that idea. He went to South Carolina and brought Michelle back to New Mexico. Dan said of the experience, I felt that I could probably take care of her and discipline her and keep her better in line. I don't believe in locking up somebody unless they've done a major crime. By the age of 13, Michelle was pregnant with her daughter and still doing drugs. According to some accounts, Michelle wanted to get help but didn't have insurance or any means to get access to insurance. Michelle's mother said, Her father and I disagreed about the best way to help her. She lived with me at different times and began to attack me physically whenever I tried to set some limits on her behavior, such as a curfew. I wanted to admit her to an inpatient facility that could treat her drug addiction, but her father wouldn't give his permission, and he came and got her and took her back to Albuquerque, where she continued living on the wild side. Although she had one conviction for prostitution, and struggled with drug addiction, Michelle's mother doesn't want her daughter to be remembered for that. She said about Michelle, she was a very fun-loving girl. She always had a smile on her face, and she would just brighten up a room with her bubbly personality. Everybody has faults, and hers was drugs. But she was still a human being. She was a good big sister. She always looked out for her sisters. And she was a mom who cared about her kids' accomplishments. Karen went on to say, Even with her faults, Michelle was sensitive, generous, and loving. That somebody would do this to my daughter and dump her like she was a piece of trash and leave her lying out there with no dignity, I am devastated and I am angry. Karen also remembers the last time she saw Michelle. It was in March of 2004, during a visit to Albuquerque. She said, It was a good visit. We took Michelle's daughter, Angelica, to Pistol Pete's Pizza and played games and laughed. During an interview in January of 2015, Michelle's dad, Dan, said, God, I wish we had some answers. We all meet our maker in the end anyway. We'll get our justice, maybe not here on earth, but we'll get our justice. Dan was battling cancer at the time, and sadly, he passed away just three months later. Karen said they didn't know who the father was of Michelle's unborn child. She said, we know it was not Tiger, the guy she was going out with when she disappeared. A few months after Michelle disappeared, one of Karen's daughters received a call from someone she knew, who said she heard from her aunt, who was a sex worker, that Michelle was, quote, stabbed a bunch of times and thrown out somewhere. The caller said that her aunt told her that Michelle and Cinnamon presumably Cinnamon Elks, another West Mesa victim, had been stabbed and discarded on the West Mesa. Karen said she asked her ex-husband, Dan, to file a missing persons report and to tell them about the phone call. However, 
he didn't file a report until February of 2005 and didn't tell police about the call. Dan later said, filling out a missing persons report on your child is quite overwhelming. In the heat of the moment, I might have forgotten. In May of 2005, three months after Dan filed a report, Karen came to Albuquerque to file her own missing persons report on Michelle. She also hung posters up all over the city and spent countless hours on the phone with police getting updates on the efforts being made to find her daughter. She got friends and family to call the police for her as well. In a statement given to police on May 12th of 2005, Karen said, In or around November of 2004, we received a phone call from a friend of my youngest daughter saying she was sorry to hear about Michelle. My daughter Camille asked what she meant, and the girl said her auntie told her Michelle had been stabbed 22 times and that she was dead. We've never gone this long without hearing from Michelle, and I'm afraid something bad has happened to her. She always comes by at or around Christmas time, and her gifts are still at home. We've heard nothing. Please help us find out where she is or what's happened to her. Born on October 24th of 1972, Cinnamon Andrea Elks was the third discovered victim, identified by dental records. Cinnamon's mother, Diana Wilhelm, said her daughter was a wonderful child. As a teenager, however, her life began taking a left turn. Cinnamon began drinking and doing drugs. She began forging her mother's signature on checks to get money for drugs. Before too long, she was a young mother of two children. Cinnamon would disappear without telling anyone where she was going. Upon her return, she'd promise to get clean and start her life over. Despite her good intentions, her promises were never fulfilled. Cinnamon started getting into trouble with the law at an early age. By the time she disappeared for good, she had been arrested at least 19 times, with 13 of those arrests resulting in convictions. Cinnamon fell into prostitution and became friends with three women who would also become victims of the West Mesa serial killer, Michelle Valdez, Julie Nieto, and Victoria Chavez. Before she went missing, Cinnamon had apparently told someone that a dirty cop was chopping off the heads of prostitutes and burying them on the West Mesa. Released from the Metropolitan Detention Center in July of 2004, Cinnamon was never heard from or seen again. Like Michelle Valdez's mother, one thing Cinnamon's mother, Diana, could always count on was a phone call from her daughter to wish her a happy birthday. In August of 2004, Diana didn't receive her birthday call. This worried her, so she called police. The police told her that since Cinnamon was an adult, she had the right to leave and not contact her family. Diana said she had to call the police numerous times before she was eventually told to report her daughter as a missing person. She filed a missing persons report on her daughter four months later, on December 15th. During the time Cinnamon was missing, Diana received a call from a man named Art Johnson, who went by the name Bennett. Bennett asked if Diana knew where Cinnamon was. Bennett told Diana that he had not seen Cinnamon in a while, and he was worried about her. Diana said about Bennett, Art was a weird guy. He said Cinnamon mainly used his place to stash her clothes. They were not in a relationship. Cinnamon said he was her roommate. 
I told Art that he better report her disappearance to the police, because if he was the last person to see her alive, then he was going to be suspect number one. Diana later told police that Cinnamon lived with Bennett, but the two were not in a relationship. It was mainly a place for her daughter to store her things. A police report dated February 5th of 2005 stated that Diana told police she had received strange phone calls from people telling her that her daughter had been murdered. One of the callers stated that Cinnamon had been murdered and beheaded. Cinnamon's friend and roommate, Bennett, said that he had also heard that Cinnamon had been beheaded. Diana spoke with Albuquerque Police Chief Ray Schultz, telling him that something was happening to young women in the city. She said of their communications, quote, He told me that I was mistaken. I told him that they were the tip of the iceberg. He said I didn't know what I was talking about. Our fight, speaking about the victims' families, with the police has always been that they've ignored us. Diana said that 15-year-old Jamie Barella, who disappeared several months before Cinnamon, called her after Cinnamon had disappeared. Diana said, quote, She called me in a rush one time and told me that Cinnamon had been murdered. I gave the information to the police, but they never got back to me. Diana also said that Virginia Cloven, another West Mesa victim, who was last seen a month before Cinnamon disappeared, called Diana and told her that Cinnamon and Michelle Valdez had both been murdered. Diana said that she reported the phone call she received to the police. She also told police that Cinnamon had told some of her friends that a police officer was beheading prostitutes and dumping them on the West Mesa. Diana said police never returned her phone calls. Julianne Cindy Nieto, who went by Julie, was born in Albuquerque on August 28, 1980. She was the fourth victim to be discovered. Julie grew up in Albuquerque's South Valley and Los Lunas areas. Julie's mother, Eleanor Griego, said that Julie began doing drugs when she was 19 years old. Eleanor said she tried to get her daughter to seek help, to no avail. Julie had an older sister named Valerie Nieto. The Nieto sisters were extremely close and seemed to be together all the time. One of their relatives was into drugs, and Eleanor believes this is what got her daughters to start using as well. Julie eventually got into prostitution to help support her drug habit and had four convictions on her record by the time she went missing. In August of 2004, Julie left her grandfather's house to pick up her son, Dominic, from the school bus stop. Julie was never seen alive again. Her mother, Eleanor, said, quote, She was a great mother. She wouldn't let that boy go for nothing. He cried and cried for her. Shortly after her disappearance, two women, Melody Carmona and Angela Romero, separately contacted the Albuquerque Police Department. Both said they were cousins of Julie and that they wanted to file a missing persons report on her. Carmona said that Julie was last seen in July of 2004. Romero said she was last seen on August 4th of 2004. On May 25th of 2005, police interviewed Eleanor and her sister, Gloria Gonzalez, who was Julie's aunt. When asked about the two women who made the missing persons reports, they said they didn't know who these women were, 
and said that neither of them were related to their family. Both Carmona and Romero became persons of interest at that point, but neither of them could be located for questioning. Julie's older sister Valerie took it hard when Julie disappeared. Eleanor said of her older daughter, she couldn't handle it. She was depressed all the time, crying all the time. That was the only sister she ever had. Two and a half years after her sister disappeared, on April 11th of 2007, Valerie Nieto was found dead from an overdose in a hotel room in Albuquerque. Eleanor is now raising two grandsons, Julie's son and Valerie's son. Family members claim to have heard there were people after Julie and Valerie. According to Eleanor, Valerie had been arrested and she wrote a note while in jail to let the family know that she and Julie had been threatened. It might have been over missing drugs or something like that. The note was given to police, but I don't know if they ever checked into it. We also heard about a time that someone chased them in the central area and that they literally ran for their lives. Eleanor said that her daughters told her that a truck driver abducted them, took them to the Manzano Mountains about 70 miles south of Albuquerque, and raped them. Eleanor said that they were also afraid of Cuban drug dealers in the Southeast Heights area of Albuquerque, as well as a police officer they called David. Eleanor reported this to police, but said she was told that a first name was not enough information for them to try to investigate. Eleanor said that Julie stored some things at Eleanor's father's house, and these things were no longer there after Julie disappeared. Eleanor's sister, Gloria, said the family began receiving phone calls from someone who said he would tell them what happened to Julie, but demanded money in exchange. The person eventually stopped calling. The fifth victim, Monica Diane Candelaria, was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico on June 20th of 1981. She became a teenage mom in 1998, giving birth to a baby daughter who she named Raina. Sadly, baby Raina didn't survive after birth. Monica later had a son, who she named Michael. Monica was last seen near the intersection of Artrisco and Central Avenue Southwest in Albuquerque on May 11th of 2003. Similar to circumstances surrounding other West Mesa victims, friends of Monica said they heard she had been killed and buried at the West Mesa. There were rumors that Monica had gang ties. Police said Monica lived a high-risk lifestyle with a prior conviction for prostitution. Monica's uncle, Toby Romera, lived right next to the site where the bodies were found. He admitted that Monica had struggled with drugs and that he had heard she had been murdered. Toby said there was a rumor circulating at the time that she had been killed and her body buried on the West Mesa. Monica's mother, Isabel Candelaria, told the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office that a man in their neighborhood named Isaac was overheard telling others that Monica had been killed and taken to the West Mesa to be buried. Not believing that police would search for her daughter, Isabel and one of her daughters searched the West Mesa for over a month, looking for Monica's remains. A 2003 missing persons report stated that a detective did follow up after Isabel called police. The report stated that the detective found a human jawbone in the area. After the jawbone was examined, it was determined that it was not Monica Candelaria's. 
Anyone who's had a migraine knows they are the absolute worst. My best friend suffers from migraines and I know firsthand how debilitating it can be. Cove is on a mission to make migraines less of a headache by offering acute and preventative migraine treatment. Cove's migraine treatment begins with a simple consultation from the convenience of your own home. After the consultation, a doctor reviews your symptoms and decides the best treatment. Then, your personalized supply of medication is delivered to your doorstep, no medical insurance required. My friend participated in Cove's consultation process and found it to be so simple, yet thorough, ensuring Cove's doctors would have a clear understanding of her symptoms to make sure she received proper treatment. Your treatment is supervised by a doctor who's licensed to practice medicine in your state and all medication prescribed by Cove's doctors are FDA approved. If you suffer from migraine headaches, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Cove, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. For a limited time, get your first month of medication for free. Visit withcove.com murderish. That's W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash murderish. Born on June 19th of 1976, Veronica Romero was the sixth West Mesa victim to be discovered. Veronica got into drugs and prostitution as she got older. Veronica had five children, Divinity Jane, Nicholas, Savannah, Joshua, and Journey. Veronica's family last saw her on Valentine's Day of 2004 as she was getting into a white pickup truck at the intersection of Wyoming Boulevard and Central Avenue. Her family put up missing persons posters with her picture on them, but they never received any useful information. Veronica was reported as a missing person on February 15th of 2004, a day after her family last saw her. Veronica's cousin, Desiree Gonzalez, grew up with some of the other victims, including Cinnamon Elks, Michelle Valdez, and Victoria Chavez. Desiree said Cinnamon Elks told her that a dirty cop was chopping off the heads of prostitutes and burying them in the West Mesa. Veronica had previous arrests for prostitution, domestic violence, shoplifting, and criminal trespassing. Her cousin Desiree said they got caught up in that lifestyle, but they're still human beings, you know, somebody's mother, somebody's sister, somebody's daughter. Doreen Marquez, the seventh West Mesa victim, was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on August 31st of 1976. She grew up in Barlas and attended West Mesa High School, where she was a cheerleader. Friends described Doreen as a nice person who ended up with the wrong guy. When her boyfriend went to jail, Doreen began doing drugs and leaving her girls with family members more often than usual. Julie Gonzalez, Doreen's sister, said, I had kicked her out of my house. That was the last time I saw her. I just told her, you know, it's better if you just go. Whenever you feel like you're not going to use, or you just want somewhere to come and eat, shower, or whatever, my door is open. And she never came back. Julie said she offered to work with her sister to get help to get her off drugs, but Doreen refused. Julie said, it's not like she lived this lifestyle from 18 to 27. It wasn't like that. It's like the last year of her life she started having problems. She was a really good mom. Police believe that Doreen was involved in prostitution. Her autopsy report states that Doreen had a history of illicit drug use and prostitution. Even so, Doreen had no record of prostitution arrests. 
An Albuquerque Metro Court spokesperson stated that Doreen had 17 charges of drug possession and shoplifting, dating back to 1994. Court records showed charges against her in 2003 for heroin and cocaine possession. Doreen was last seen on October 10th of 2003. There are two different reports of her last sighting. A police report has a witness seeing Doreen dropping off a child at Calvary Christian Academy near the intersection of Southeast Lead and University. Doreen had two daughters, Destiny and Mercedes. A friend of Doreen's said she saw her walking into the Borellis neighborhood of Southwest Albuquerque near Lead and University. This is about two and a half miles from the intersection of Artrisco and Central Avenue Southwest, where Monica Candelaria was last seen. Doreen was reported as a missing person in December of 2004, a year after she was last seen. After bones were discovered on the West Mesa, Doreen's body was identified by dental records from work she had done while she was in jail. Lori Gallegos, a good friend of Doreen's, said that Doreen went from a life of driving a fancy car and living in a nice home to being addicted to drugs and living on the street. She said that in 2000, Doreen was in a relationship that ended badly and she turned to drugs. Within a few years, her behavior had completely changed. Gallego said she turned to prostitution to support her drug habit and that she'd disappear, leaving the children with their father or with her family. Gallego said that Doreen was arrested and put in jail several times. Gallego said she called me in October 2003 and said she was clean, but she just didn't feel right. She was having a lot of issues. That was the last time I ever talked to her. Gallego said that she heard a local man knew what happened to Doreen, but when she confronted him, he claimed to not know anything about her friend. Dorothy Marquez remembers her older sister before the drugs destroyed her, saying about Doreen, she was funny, and she was as beautiful inside as she was outside. She was very loving. She loved her daughters and our mom. She was my teacher. She taught me how to make friends and how to do my hair. Siliana Edwards, the eighth victim, was born on November 26, 1987, in Harris County, Texas. Siliana was the only West Mesa victim who was not from New Mexico and the only victim who was African-American. She was one of two victims who were not on Albuquerque Detective Ida Lopez's list of missing women in the area. Siliana lived most of her life in the Department of Human Services, or DHS. She never knew her father and was removed from her mother's home when she was just five years old. In August of 2003, at the age of 15, Siliana ran away from Parker Point, the girls' group home in Lawton, Oklahoma, where she was staying. Siliana was reported as an endangered runaway on the list for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The teenage girl was last seen in May of 2004 in Aurora, Colorado, on East Colfax Street. Police believe that Siliana had been staying at the Ranger Motel with three other women who went by the names of Lucretia, Ty, and Diamond. Siliana may have been going by the name Mimi or Chocolate. Police think that Siliana was a circuit girl, someone who works the prostitution trade along Interstate 40, which runs through Albuquerque. Siliana's remains were identified by a step-by-step method. She had a unique acrylic fingernail, 
of which police took a picture. They then completed a sketch of her using skeletal reconstruction and compared it to the online photos of missing children. Once they had a possible match, they showed the photo to employees from Parker Point, the group home from which she ran away. The employees confirmed that the sketch did look like Siliana. After that, authorities obtained Siliana's dental records, which confirmed that the remains found on the West Mesa were Siliana's. Siliana was just 16 years old when she went missing. Born in Albuquerque on August 7th of 1981, Virginia Cloven was the ninth West Mesa victim. She grew up in a small trailer in Los Chavez. When Virginia was in high school, tragedy struck her family when her older brother was shot and killed. When the person who shot him was put on trial, he was acquitted on self-defense. A week later, Virginia ran away from home and her surviving brother followed suit. Virginia's father, Robert Cloven, said of his runaway children, they said they couldn't stand it anymore. Tragedy seemed to follow Virginia. Her boyfriend was hit by a car and injured so severely that he lapsed into a coma. Virginia had been living with him at the time he was in the accident. Without him, Virginia could not afford to stay where she was and ended up living on the streets of Albuquerque's war zone. Soon, Virginia turned to drugs and then to prostitution. Her father said that Virginia called him one year, asking what she could get him for his birthday. She had a court date that day, and her father asked her to get her citations for court settled and then come to her grandfather's house. Robert said, we went to go meet her on my birthday after court. She said, come to grandpa's, but she wasn't there. After that, she just vanished. Virginia's parents began searching for her. They put her picture on the window of their vehicle and drove around the parts of town where they knew their daughter spent a lot of time. They hoped someone would see the sign in their car window and provide information regarding their daughter's whereabouts, but nothing ever came of it. In June of 2004, Virginia called her parents. She told her father that she had a new boyfriend with whom she was living. The boyfriend had just gotten out of prison, and Virginia wanted to marry him. Virginia's father, Robert, said, We said we'd like to meet him, but we never heard from her again. After that, everything just went dead. After not hearing from her for four months, Virginia's parents filed a missing persons report in October of 2004. Five years later, in 2009, police came to Robert's door to tell them they had found his daughter's remains. Robert could not believe she was dead. He said, We just couldn't believe it. We were hoping it was a mistake. In the back of our minds, we were still hoping she would be out there. The Clovens no longer celebrate Christmas. Robert said, Because it's not Christmas without your children. The death of Virginia continues to haunt them. Robert said, When you lose a kid, it's the hardest thing in the world, I think. I've lost other family members, but when it's your daughter or son, it hurts worse. Before her body was discovered, the Clovens kept the same phone number, hoping that wherever Virginia was, she would call them. Every year that goes by, according to Robert, is a painful reminder of the great loss they have endured. Evelyn Jesus Maria Salazar was born on November 27, 1978. Evelyn and her 15-year-old cousin, Jamie Barella, left a family gathering on March 26, 2004, heading to a park in southeast Albuquerque. The two cousins were never seen alive again.
they would turn out to be the 10th and 11th West Mesa victims. Like many of the victims, Evelyn was known to have a history of drug use. She had been convicted twice for drugs and once for prostitution, just three months before she and Jamie disappeared. Evelyn had two daughters named Mariah and Angel. Jamie Barella's mother said she knew that her daughter was experimenting with drugs. She was also aware that Evelyn had some run-ins with the law. In a statement, Evelyn's mother, Myra Salazar, spoke about all of the women, not just her daughter and niece. Evelyn said, They didn't deserve what they got. It's awful what happened to them. They all had families that cared for them. Evelyn Salazar's cousin, Jamie Catalina Yvonne Barella, was born on September 28th of 1988. Before she vanished, Jamie told her mother, Jane Perea Barella, that she and her cousin Evelyn were going to Wilson Park near Kirtland Air Force Base at San Mateo and Gibson Boulevard Southeast. Jamie didn't tell her mother why they were going, but she said she'd be right back. The two cousins left so quickly that Jamie forgot to turn her curling iron off before she left. That was the last time either of them would ever be seen alive again. When questioned later, Jane Barilla said she went with her cousin Evelyn, and Jamie even left her curling iron on so she could pick up where she left off. The girls were going to the park, for I don't know what reason. They never returned. Jane said the two cousins were like best friends, despite the 10-year age difference. Jamie was the only one of the missing women the police said had no known connections to either drugs or prostitution, although her mother said she was aware that Jamie had been experimenting with drugs. Jamie, just 15 years old when she disappeared, was the youngest and last victim to be buried on the West Mesa. Her remains were identified on January 26th of 2010. Several men were considered suspects during the investigation into the 11 murdered women and unborn child. Five men in particular were the focus of the investigation. Fred Reynolds was the man that Doreen Marquez's friend, Lori Gallegos, had questioned regarding Doreen's whereabouts. Reynolds, who had been arrested for the promotion of prostitution twice, had ties to some of the victims. The Albuquerque Police Department said they found photos of three of the West Mesa victims when they raided Reynolds' home. Reynolds died of natural causes on January 2nd of 2009, a month before the bones were found, eliminating the possibility of questioning him in connection with the grisly discovery. Convicted serial killer Scott Lee Kimball killed at least four people between 2003 and 2005, while working as an FBI informant. He dumped his victims' bodies in various locations in Colorado and Utah. Kimball did travel through New Mexico during these years, and even though he brags about having killed many more people, he denied any connection to the West Mesa murders. Ron Irwin, owner of a photography studio in Joplin, Missouri, was surprised by Missouri State Police, Albuquerque Police, and federal police on August 3rd of 2010 when his house and business were raided. Documents, photographs, and other evidence were brought back to Albuquerque for police to sift through. It is unknown exactly why Irwin became a suspect in the West Mesa murders, although he was thought to be in New Mexico when at least three of the West Mesa victims disappeared. 
Irwin had also admitted to going to the seedy parts of town to meet people and take photos of them. After the raid, police released six pictures of seven different women. Police said they needed help to identify and locate the women, four of which appeared to be unconscious in the photos. Five of the women were eventually identified, four of them were alive and well, and the fifth woman had died of natural causes. Police later said they didn't believe the two identified women were missing or in danger. None of the seven women in the photos turned out to be West Mesa victims. Given all of the attention from police, Irwin hired attorneys in Albuquerque and Joplin. Police had always believed that Irwin was in Albuquerque during the time that three West Mesa victims disappeared. However, Irwin would later prove that he was in Joplin when those three victims disappeared. Going a step further, Irwin's attorneys arranged for him to take a polygraph test, which was administered by a former FBI polygrapher. Irwin passed the test with flying colors. Oddly, Police apparently never officially questioned Irwin in connection with the 11 West Mesa murders. Even so, a police report dated June 26 of 2011 indicated that Irwin was not a viable suspect in the West Mesa murders. On December 17th of 2006, around 3 in the morning, in a trailer home on Blake Street Southwest in Albuquerque, 19-year-old Sharika Hill was bound, raped, and murdered by 39-year-old Lorenzo Montoya. The location where Sharika was murdered was only two to three miles from where the West Mesa victims would be found just over two years later. Lorenzo Montoya was well known to the Albuquerque Police Department. Since local women had begun disappearing over the previous five years, Montoya had become one of their top suspects. He had a long history of arrests with charges including aggravated battery in 1986, domestic violence in 1994, solicitation of an undercover police officer in 1998, and criminal sexual penetration and kidnapping in 1999. Montoya and Sharika met online. Sharika was advertised as either a dancer or a sex worker, and the two arranged for Sharika to come to Montoya's trailer. Sharika had her boyfriend, Frederick Williams, drive her close to Montoya's trailer, perhaps as a safety precaution. Then, she got out of her boyfriend's car and walked the rest of the way to the trailer. Williams waited in the car as Sharika was supposed to be back after 30 minutes. After waiting for an hour, Williams grew concerned. He got out of the car and went to Montoya's trailer. There are four different versions regarding what happened next, but they all end the same. In short, all versions of the story indicated that Montoya strangled Sharika to death, then Williams shot and killed Montoya. Montoya is significant for the West Mesa case for a few reasons. He had a violent criminal history and was known to frequent sex workers. He lived very close to the spot where the 11 women and one unborn child were found. His last crime was the violent murder of a dancer or sex worker. Satellite images from 2006 showed dirt trails leading from the site where the bodies were found directly to the trailer park where Montoya lived. Also of significance, Montoya's death occurred in December of 2006. This is significant for two possible reasons. 
Michelle Valdez was last seen in September of 2004, meaning that all of the West Mesa victims had disappeared long before Montoya's death in 2006. Furthermore, of the 16 names listed on Ida Lopez's list of missing women, the last one to disappear was in May of 2006. All of the women on Lopez's list had disappeared before Montoya's death. Ladies, how much do you spend dry cleaning the dress pants you wear to work? How much time do you spend ironing those pants? Let me introduce you to Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants, the most amazing wrinkle-free and machine-washable pair of work pants you will ever wear. The name says it all. Your workday and weekend attire worlds just collided. Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants are the most comfortable, sleek, and stylish pants I have ever worn to work. They're made with a four-way ponte stretch, and they're like your favorite yoga pant but on steroids. Beta Brand's pants are made with a thicker, more durable material than yoga pants, but they feel just as comfy. Genius, right? I've been wearing the Skinny Leg Cigarette Dress Pant Yoga Pant, and I am loving them. The fit is perfect, they keep their shape all day, and I can move around in them without worrying that I'm going to split a seam. They really are the best of both worlds, stylish and work-appropriate, but they feel like a comfy yoga pant. The regular dress pants I've always worn are uncomfortable, they wrinkle easy, and require annoying trips to the dry cleaner. I've rocked my dress pant yoga pants with heels, flats, and even flip-flops. They're so versatile. Beta Brand has tons of styles and colors to choose from. There's really something for everyone. Ladies, get yourself a pair of Beta Brand dress pant yoga pants, kick your legs up on the conference room table, and stretch out like a boss during your next meeting. Okay, maybe don't do that because you'll probably get canned. But the point is, you can stretch out in these pants. They are amazing. Are you ready to ditch your old school dress pants and upgrade like I did? Visit betabrand.com slash murderish, all lowercase, to get 20% off your purchase. That's betabrand.com slash murderish, all lowercase. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Visit betabrand.com slash murderish, all lowercase, to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants. Joseph Blea, also known as the McKinley Middle School Rapist, and the middle school rapist, began having trouble at a relatively young age. In the late 1970s, when Blea was 19 years old, he was arrested for three counts of domestic burglary. The items that he stole included women's clothing. He received no jail time for his crimes. Instead, he was given five years of probation and ordered to have a medical evaluation. A few months later, Blea was arrested again this time for indecent exposure. He was sent to a behavioral health institute where he was recommended for immediate treatment, treatment which he most likely never received, as he was arrested a few months later again for indecent exposure. At that time, his probation was revoked and he served two years in prison. After being released from prison, Blea was quickly arrested for criminal sexual penetration he pleaded to a reduced charge of aggravated assault and spent another two years in prison. After his second release from prison, Blea began stalking girls at Albuquerque's McKinley Middle School. His stalking quickly escalated to rape. In one of the attacks, he knew the victim would be home alone after school. 
he broke into her house before she got home and hid. When the girl came home, Balea raped her at knife point, then locked her in a bathroom so he could make his escape. Blea would avoid being caught for this brutal crime until 2010, when DNA identified him as the perpetrator. Between 1990 and 2009, the Albuquerque police would come into contact with Blea, either in person or hearing his name from others, almost 140 times. One of the run-ins involved police picking up Blea after he exposed himself to a sex worker. When they searched his car, they found a roll of electrical tape and a rope on his passenger seat. On February 9th of 2009, one week after the first bones were recovered at the West Mesa burial site, a woman named April Gillen contacted Albuquerque police. She told police that Joseph Blea was her ex-husband, and she believed they should look at him as a suspect for at least two, possibly three, of the remains found on the West Mesa. Gillen told police that Blea had worked in landscaping and would drive out to the West Mesa at night to dump materials and trash in order to save the few dollars it would cost him to legally take the trash to a dump. The fact that Blea had owned a landscaping company would become a topic of interest for investigators later in 2009. Armed with the information provided by his ex-wife, police began tailing Blea. They observed him multiple times driving slowly through the East Corridor, an area of high crime and prostitution, watching the prostitutes, circling back, and driving through again. Although he never made contact with them, it appeared that he was stalking them. Police decided to get a search warrant. In October, Blea's house on Shadyside Southwest, about five miles from the site where the bodies were discovered, was raided. Police found jewelry and women's underwear that didn't belong to his wife, Cheryl Blea, or his daughter. His wife said she found some jewelry and underwear hidden in different places in the house. Blea's daughter said she had found some women's underwear in the shed. While looking at records of Blea's landscaping business, investigators found documents showing that he made regular purchases from a nursery in Albuquerque. That nursery bought many of its plants and trees from a wholesale nursery in California. The reason this was interesting to police was that while police were uncovering the bones of the West Mesa victims, a small plastic tag was found under Virginia Cloven's body. The plastic tag was the skew ID tag for a spearmint juniper tree purchased from the same landscaping wholesaler in California. Although they could not prove that Blea bought that particular tree, they could at least loosely tie him to the scene. A 2010 affidavit showed that Albuquerque police had spoken with 20 different sex workers who identified Blea as a customer in the East Central Corridor, which is part of the war zone. One of the sex workers claimed to have been inside his house and was able to describe the inside of it. She said that Blea asked to buy her underwear from her. The affidavit also said one of his ex-wives said that Blea often speaks about his hatred for prostitutes, calling them dirty whores and sluts, sometimes calling them by name. In 2010, DNA testing showed that Joseph Blea was the McKinley Middle School rapist. In June of 2015, 2nd Judicial District Judge Judith Nakamara sentenced Blea to back-to-back 
18-year sentences for the kidnapping and rape of a 13-year-old girl in 1988. In October of 2015, Blea was convicted of raping three McKinley Middle School girls in the late 80s and early 90s. His sentences added up to 90 years, which also included convictions for the 1985 rape and murder of Jennifer Lynn Sherm, a sex worker, on Central Avenue in Albuquerque. Blea's DNA was found on Jennifer's jeans. The West Mesa murders, which at one time had 40 investigators working on the case, slowly dwindled down to just one detective, Ida Lopez. Lopez retired from the force in 2014. Detective Mark Manoray, who had been with the department for 15 years, was chosen to replace her. Manoray said he interviewed hundreds of people and investigated the past lives of both the victims and suspects. Through that process, Manoray said he was able to eliminate some of the suspects, although he would not give any names. Although cases tend to get colder as time goes on, Manoray said the passing of time sometimes can help to solve cases. Manoray said the longer a case goes, the harder it is to collect certain evidence that is time-sensitive. But at the same time, a witness that may have been too scared to talk at the time of the incident because of their personal situation may be more willing to talk at a later date. Albuquerque Police Chief Ray Schultz left the force in 2013 while the department was being investigated by the United States Department of Justice. In January of 2018, New Albuquerque Police Chief Michael Geyer gave an interview to Marissa Lucero of KRQE. Lucero asked Geyer about Lorenzo Montoya and Joseph Blea, the two men thought to be the most viable suspects in the West Mesa serial murders. Regarding Montoya, Geyer responded, We would have liked Mr. Montoya to have been our main suspect and closed the case out, but with him being deceased, it limited our investigative capabilities. The similarities were there. One thing we had was his home. We went through every piece of that, from his carpeting to anything he had in the home and anything he had in the vehicle, and nothing panned out. Although he didn't specifically address Blea, Geyer did say about the men, I think there are two strongest candidates, so to speak, as the main suspects, but you know sometimes there's a surprise, and there may be someone we never even looked at. Geyer wanted people to know that police are still working on the West Mesa case. A lot of people thought that police, with the exception of Ida Lopez, weren't putting the necessary efforts in to locate their loved ones, and they believed this was due to the victims being drug addicts and sex workers. Geyer denied this, particularly under his direction. When asked what he wanted the families to know, Geyer said, We just want them to know we haven't forgotten them. I think in the back of everyone's mind is if we can win this one, that would be the biggest victory for the city. On Tuesday, July 3rd of 2018, the city's worst fears seemed to be realized when workers building a park uncovered human bones. The location where bones were found was just a quarter mile from the location where the West Mesa victims' remains were found. Thoughts in the community immediately went to the remainder of the missing women on Ida Lopez's list. There were at least six women on Ida Lopez's list who still hadn't been found. 
The Albuquerque Police Department began working the scene, and Chief Geyer cautioned that it may take a while before they'd know anything definite. He said, we're not 100% sure that this is related, but at this point, we're treating it as if it's similar to the first round. It's definitely a little bit of deja vu. It looks different, but it feels the same. Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller cautioned that human bones found so close to the West Mesa victim site doesn't necessarily mean the discoveries are related incidents. Keller said this has been an archaeological area as well. So we certainly understand and are very concerned that this might be one of the six to eight women from the original West Side group. However, there's no way we can confirm that at this time. Oddly, the park at which the workers were building was a memorial park for the West Mesa victims. Albuquerque City Councilor Clarissa Pena said of the situation, I am saddened at the tragic loss of human life and at the thought that yet another family has had to endure years of uncertainty and pain not knowing where their loved one was. Doreen Marquez's sister, Julie Gonzalez, could feel the emotions come rushing back again, saying that it made her heart pound. She said, it just brings it all back, 10 years later, back to day one. The digging, the finding, the scraping. It's just like, wow. As police started going through the scene, some residents of the Sandstone Trail subdivision of the West Mesa were positive that a second burial site had just been discovered. One neighbor, Carrie Freeman, said, I was freaked out. I actually got goosebumps, and I thought I was going to be sick and everything else. In February of 2009, Sandstone Trails, just north of Westgate Heights subdivision, where the West Mesa victims were found, was also undeveloped. This gave residents of the area good reason to believe that their properties might be part of another crime scene. On Friday, July 6th of 2018, the Albuquerque Police Department advised the public that the bones found three days prior on the West Mesa were not connected to the West Mesa serial murders. The Office of the Medical Investigator had determined, through dental features, that the bones were those of ancient Native Americans and were part of an archaeological dig over 1,000 years old. The Office of the Medical Investigator turned the case over to the state archaeologist to find and remove any additional remains. Albuquerque police officer Simon Drobik said the detectives had the painstaking task of telling the victims' families that this evidence doesn't have anything to do with the case. That was the hardest part of today for the detectives. They're working really diligently. Everyone out there wants to find some evidence to give closure for the families. Unfortunately, today it didn't happen. Today, the Albuquerque Police Department continues to receive an abundance of tips regarding the West Mesa serial murders. In 2019, Lieutenant Scott Norris said there are now three cold case detectives assigned to the case, along with former detective Ida Lopez. Ida came out of retirement to work with the task force on a contract basis to solve the case. Norris said he's hopeful that advances in technology will help them catch the person or persons responsible. Norris said, as this technology grows and becomes better, we can resubmit things for testing that earlier technology may not have picked up on. He also encouraged the public to call in tips to the department, saying, there's no tip that's insignificant. The littlest thing could lead to a break in the case. 
there are no lulls in the investigation. University of New Mexico professor Dirk Gibson, an expert on serial killers who's written two books on the topic, termed the West Mesa murders Albuquerque's crime of the century. Gibson commented about his surprise regarding the lack of attention the deaths of 11 women and an unborn child had received. He said, There hasn't been the degree of public fear and alarm that you might expect. There has been very little publicity. There's a sense of physical remoteness. This place was very removed. A combination of remoteness, of time, and geography made it so that there has been little pressure on the police to investigate. Albuquerqueans don't relate to the victims. They think they're just a bunch of hookers and drug addicts. Police budgets are stretched thin. There's so little money and there are so many crimes. Investigating a 10-year-old crime where the police think that the victims had it coming, there's just no incentive for that. Gibson is convinced the murders were the work of a serial killer, saying, this is almost certainly a case of serial murder. Unless a number of women independently decided to walk there to die, there was no other explanation besides serial murder. The West Mesa site is only a dumping ground. The murders were committed elsewhere. It is possible that the murders are ongoing, but that a different dump site is being used. Gibson thinks that more than one person may have been involved, either two men or even a gang committing the murders. He said that sex workers are often targeted by gangs and pimps. He also gave a chilling statement that the site at 118th Street and Dennis Chavez Boulevard Southwest might only be the beginning of the discoveries and not the end. Gibson said, It's logical that there may be more than one grave site. Albuquerque is filled with tons of these types of sites. If police discovered this one, which clearly had been discontinued, maybe there's another one. I wouldn't be at all surprised. On Saturday, February 2nd of 2019, 10 years to the day after Ruka found the femur which led to the discovery of the West Mesa victims, a memorial service was held for the 12 victims. The memorial was held at the site where the Memorial Park for the Victims broke ground in June of 2018. Street Safe New Mexico is a nonprofit agency that works to increase safety for women who live and work on the streets of Albuquerque. Workers from the agency spoke about the West Mesa Memorial Service with the women the organization meets with each week. Many of the women who are part of the Street Safe New Mexico program wrote notes to the victims. Volunteers tied these notes to the fence next to the crime scene in tribute. Christine Barber, executive director of Street Safe New Mexico, talked about the memorial service saying, It's a really sad and horrible anniversary. Here is the mark of 10 years. Looking back, what has changed for women on the streets? StreetSafe was founded in 2009 in response to the West Mesa murders. Christine co-founded StreetSafe New Mexico with Cynthia Vigil because of the lack of knowledge and publicity regarding the murdered women in and around the community. The organization exists to protect the health and safety of the women who work and live on the streets of New Mexico. Street safe workers volunteer on the streets of Albuquerque by handing out clothing, food, condoms, hygiene products, 
and homemade pepper spray to women who live and work on the streets. Students from the University of New Mexico volunteer to help educate IV drug users regarding how to prevent abscesses from their drug abuse. The organization also has a bad guy list, which gives descriptions of men who have attacked women on the street. Updated bad guy lists are handed out every week. StreetSafe makes sure to have volunteers maintain a presence along certain areas in case women begin disappearing again. Christine said you have to know people, their names, and what they look like to know people are missing. In 2018, StreetSafe New Mexico paid for a billboard to be erected to try to find the remaining missing women from the same period as the West Mesa victims. Christine said the purpose of the billboard was to generate leads but also to remind the public that there was also a whole other group of women missing. In 1999, StreetSafe co-founder Cynthia Vigil was kidnapped by a man and held in his trailer for three days. Luckily, Cynthia was able to escape and the man was arrested. Cynthia said helping to start StreetSafe New Mexico was kind of my healing process to heal from being kidnapped in my past. Cynthia realizes that knowing who and where the women who live and work on the street are is important. She said, I don't know when my family would have realized I was missing. I'm just glad that we're able to keep track of the girls. And if someone's missing, we do report it to the police. And we do find the family and make sure they're safe. Christine Barber believes that everyone in the community needs to help find out what happened to the remaining missing women, as well as to help those who still live and work on the streets. She said, them being targeted will never change unless we see them as less of prostitute criminals and more as humans. During the West Mesa Victims Memorial Service, Curanderas, female folk healers, gave a ceremony and sang a song, giving the names of all of the women who were buried there, as well as the names of the others who were still missing from the same time period. Curandera Denise Griego de Angel spoke about the problem regarding Albuquerque's most vulnerable citizens, saying, This is a cause that's been very close to my heart for many years. I once lived on the streets myself and went through a lot of the same things that these women must have gone through. You know, but for the grace of God, there go I. Speaking about the politicians and police officials, Griego's advice was to help the vulnerable. She said, The best legacy would be to end this sort of mentality that these women or people on the streets deserve what they get. They don't deserve any of that. They just deserve to exist and be happy and healthy. KB Holmes, the developer that owns the land where the West Mesa victims were found, promised to build a memorial park for the victims in 2009. In 2015, Albuquerque City Councilor Ken Sanchez said in an interview that the design of the park had been completed by KB Holmes and the city of Albuquerque. He said he believed the park would be finished in six to eight months. As of today, three years later, the Memorial Park has yet to be built. The reason cited for the delay is lack of funding. Apparently, $300,000 is still needed in order to build the Memorial Park. Sanchez and fellow city councilor Clarissa Pena have continued efforts to get the park built in the area where the archaeological bones were discovered in July of 2018. In November of 2018, 
Albuquerque police received information about some disturbed property on the West Mesa that may be linked to the burial site. They quickly investigated the area in hopes that evidence may lead to some of the other missing women from the same time, but nothing was ever found. Philip Cleland, who was the spokesperson for the Albuquerque Parks and Recs Department, said that the family members of the 11 women helped to design the Memorial Park. Cleland said they wanted this to be more of a contemplative place, not solemn but serious, contemplative and dignified. The park will have grass in the middle and 11 benches, each engraved with the victim's name. The families also got to choose a tree to represent their loved one. The trees will be in a circle with an empty entrance spot for Michelle Valdez's unborn child. Craig LeMessurier of KB Homes confirmed that the company is donating three acres for the Memorial Park. Anyone with information concerning the victims and or potential suspects is encouraged to contact the 118th Street Task Force at 1-877-765-8273 or 505-768-2450. You can also contact Crime Stoppers at 505-843-STOP. Information can also be emailed to Detective Denise Myers at D Myers, that's M Y E R S, at CABQ.gov, or investigator Ida Lopez at I L O P E Z at CABQ.gov. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod or on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways you can support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show easier. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by Cove for Migraines, Beta Brand Online Clothing Community, and Mott and Bow Clothing Company. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com slash murderish, where your monthly support will take you behind the mic and give you access to perks like exclusive bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, and other cool stuff. That's patreon.com slash murderish. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? My online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. 
It just means you're murder-ish. the murderific true crime podcast hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, the missing, and unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then... We will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.